0: Well, I'm going to drive you crazy today because I'm going to be all over the place. I'm going to spend uh, the framework of this is in the second Timothy. So you're going to definitely want to put a finger in there. I'm also going to Ephesians, I believe, chapter six, if my memory is correct. I'm going to read a little bit from Ephesians two, but it's only a few verses. You can trust me on that probably. Um, where else am I going to be? Ephesians two, Ephesians six, six, uh, first first Uh, Second Timothy, I think. Yeah, Second Timothy. And there was one other one that I'm going to read to you. Well, you probably don't need that, but it's in John 10. So they give you a chance to find your Bibles, get your page there. Uh, Back in the old days, we tried to keep up with the preacher when he did this stuff. But these PowerPoints made it easy to be lazy, didn't they? Yeah, you don't don't need to be able to turn pages so fast. So that's kind of nice. Uh, I'm looking currently for a, a, a book that... Uh, I feel the Lord wants me to preach through, but in the meantime, uh, this keeps coming back to me. Last week, I tried to, attempted to speak about America in prophecy and uh, introduced a whole lot of problems that uh, I believe we're facing as a country. I'm not going to review that. I made myself so depressed it took me two days to get over my own message. Uh, so this time, I'm going to try to talk about the other side of that, and that is our role in these days that we're in. in I titled this sermon, not that it matters, but God's plan for our defense. So I'm going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, which is a verse we've gone over. This might be the fourth time that uh, we've done that in the last month. I think I've brought it up almost in every message, uh, and I'm going to just pick up a couple aspects of that and share with you if I could. Uh, Second Timothy chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. Let us know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, trucebreakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Now there's some things I want to emphasize in that as we go into this. One is the phrase lovers of their own selves. The next is covetous, lovers of stuff or lovers of money. The next is despisers of those that are good. The next I want to emphasize is lovers of pleasures more than God. And finally having a form. Of godliness but denying the power of the authority thereof you know there are those in our nation that have worked very hard for 150 years now to throw off every vestige of christianity in this country while those of us who are believers see very clearly a distinct christian heritage in our past they very much want to deny that and cast it off. i've always wanted to blame my generation and i and i often do uh, my generation that those of us that came to, through our teenage years and grew into adulthood in the 60s, I, I don't know what we're called. Are we the boomers who came of age in the 60s? I always wanted to blame, blame my generation. I, I don't think I'm historian enough to know when all these problems started for us. I know it's a problem when the generation before me tells their children, I don't care what religion you are, you can pick it for yourself. I, I can't think of anything worse you could tell your children is you're going to have to pick your own religion. Because that, that says you don't believe anything. And that was my mother's generation. They went through the Great Depression. They went through World War II. You would have thought that they, they became people of great faith as they came through those terrible times. And, and I think it was true for many of them, but apparently not all of them. Not all of them. You know, my grandfather, one more generation back, was so angry with God that when he died, uh, he made my father promise there would not be a preacher present at his funeral. I I don't know who he thought was going to do the funeral, but he just didn't want a preacher there. He was so angry with God. His wife died of cancer. Uh, He died of brain cancer. And there have always been some in our country, and easily to say in our world, who wanted nothing to do with Christ. That should not surprise us. The fact that there are some that come to Christ is what's wonderful. But fortunately for our nation, those who wanted to destroy this country with their atheistic approach to life had not worked their way into the leadership, where we find that today... Our greatest fear is that these atheists, these anti Christians, if that's a term, have found their way into the leadership of our country. And I find that very frightening, as I talked about last week. In the meantime, while they were waiting to find uh, those who would vote for them, I suppose, we know they squeezed their way into our school systems and began working their twisted influence first in the higher levels and they've worked their way down now to where it's even in elementary school and to a large extent in this country we the church have been so busy doing other things that we let them get away with it for many of our neighbors right now all that's left is a shadow of Christianity a memory if you will some are even trying to deny that Christianity was ever a significant part of this country and they want to push even that out but for too many of our neighbors right now, Christianity is a mere echo of what it used to be in their lives when they were little. We have our Christmas trees and the gifts and a few Christmas carols that we like to sing, but Christ is nowhere to be found. in At Easter, we have our Easter egg hunts. What a frightening thought that churches are doing Easter egg hunts. I don't know, it just seems somehow blasphemous to me. Uh, although I am a bit of a stick in the mud about things that are fun. I think Easter eggs are better if you put chocolate in them than if you put eggs in the first They have their Easter egg hunts and their candy. This month, this, this country will celebrate Thanksgiving, and I wonder who they're thanking, don't you? Who are they thanking at Thanksgiving? What are they celebrating? There is a memory of our past, There is an operation of a custom or a shadow from the past, but there's not much else. This nation is gradually turning away from God, and that's probably not a very good way to say it. This nation is actually being divided right down the middle, I hope it's in the middle, between those who hold fast to God and those that don't want anything to do with God. And that's what our passage is about today. It's about a time when people will refuse to even put up with a discussion about God. The Holy Spirit describes them. There's, you know, Ron Ron Clark used to always criticize me because them and us, and he used to say, we are them. I hope we're not them. In my mind, they are the ones that want to push Christ out of our culture. And in my mind, we're the ones that are trying to retain Christ in our culture and, if at all possible, bring Christ to them. The Holy Spirit in this passage describes them as lovers of their own selves. Life for them is all about what they're doing and who they are and what they're at. For them, narcissism is king. They're also covetous. Their God is money. Their God is stuff. All they care about is themselves, and all they want is more stuff, better stuff more expensive stuff. The Holy Spirit tells us in this passage that they are boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, and unholy. Now, I find that interesting because that's almost the entire list of the opposite of the thing that my mother tried to teach me when I was a kid. Even though she wasn't an active believer, she was raised in a Christian culture and attempted to make me, give me a character of, To to train me in the art of humility, of quietness, obedience, thankfulness, and propriety, self-control. She wanted that in her children. And she attempted to train that in us. We are attempting to train that in our children. And it is the opposite of what the Holy Spirit is describing here. The character traits that we teach. Humility, quietness, obedience, thankfulness are all meaningless in the face of the perverse self-love that this, this group that the Holy Spirit is describing as growing in our culture is exhibiting. They love boasting, they love swearing, rebelling, complaining because it's all about them and how they feel. I'm ashamed to say that there are even seminaries where people tell the teacher what the scriptures say to them. You know, what they think the scriptures are saying. Instead of exegeting what the Bible is saying to them, they're isogeting, or what they're isogeting is reading into the scriptures, what they want it to say. And the, the Holy Spirit teaches us that most of all, they're in love with pleasure. It's all about them, and it's all about them feeling good. The Christian God that they worship, they being the world is in their way. It's an obstacle in their path. Now I can say that another way. Soon to come near us we will be an obstacle in their way. You see, because we will stop them or attempt to stop them from doing what they're doing. Now while we might be tempted to let them go their selfish way, which we've always done in the past, if if you want to sin, go on and sin. If you want to rebel, go on and rebel. I wish you wouldn't, but the fact is I can't stop you, so I'm just going to let you go. And that's worked for us. As long as they were in a relative minority, that's worked. But the the Holy Spirit warns in this passage another phrase that you'll find in there that says they are despisers of those that's people we're talking about. They are despisers of those that are good. Jesus told us that if the world hates you, we shouldn't be surprised because it hated him before it hated us. The lost world will never be content to leave us alone. That's the frightening part of this prophecy. Our lives represent everything the lost world despises. So the phrase, if we fail to influence them, means they will influence us, is very true for us. They hate us on a level that we don't understand. Having a form of godliness is the second phrase that frightens me the most in this passage. One is that this world is going to turn on us one day and it's going to attempt to silence us and then push us out of the way and hopefully we'll be out of here before it attempts to get rid of us. But they'll have a form of godliness denying the power thereof, the Holy Spirit says. It tells us to turn away from them. He's talking about people in the church that are so worldly that they fit this mold of the world. They are patterning themselves after the world. And yet somehow, this person wants me, wants you, to recognize them as somehow good or somehow godly. They want, for some reason, to be recognized that they're okay. I'm reminded of my own he told me as I attempted to witness to him. He said, "Oh, Bobby, I've lived a good life." He wanted me to acknowledge the fact that he'd lived a good life, stayed with his wife all those years who was sick, took care of his family. Yes, he did all that stuff. But I told him, Paul. The Bible says there's none good. No, not one. There's no one that fits that category. And, and this this category of person does not want to hear that from us." You know, as much as possible, i resisted telling them because I don't want to get into a fight. Somehow they insist that we approve or accept their lives. It's not enough to simply not agree with them. We have to somehow approve them. Just as our very presence is a a problem for the lost world, it was the same way with Paul. Hence the reason for turning back to Ephesians at, at one point in this message. Ephesians was a town where persecution was rigged. And it was a problem for Paul all throughout his entire career. He faced this type of opposition all the time. And Paul the Apostle is a good example of how we should approach difficult times when people want to oppose us or silence us. So Paul writes, and I'm still in 2 Timothy, I haven't left yet. So Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith. I'm adding those my's. You see that. My long suffering, my charity, my patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came to me at Antioch and Iconium at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Now what, what, what I think Paul is saying is you know what I've been through and you know how I faced opposition. You see that I faced their rejection and their abuse and their persecution. You see that I faced it with patience. You know, you see the word patience actually twice here. One is patience and one is endurance. And the other one is charity, which we translate as love. It's the word agape. You see how I faced their opposition with purpose with faith, with patience, with love, and with endurance. You see, I looked at their persecutions and afflictions, and the Lord delivered me from all of these. Now what is true for him, Paul writes, is true for us in verse 12. Yea, and all that would live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now as long as we're quiet, as long as we don't complain, As long as we don't stand up and say anything, we'll be all right until they move against us. But as soon as we speak up and say, this is not right, this is not true, all that would stand up for God will suffer persecution. We have a choice. The choice is, are we going to live for God? Or are we going to be quiet and let the world run right over us? That's really the issue. For a long time, we could live and just let live. But this Switzerland option is no longer going to be available to us if this prophecy is correct, and I'm convinced that it is. We see it happening all around us as the world moves against the church, even in the land of the free. We see this in verse 13, still in in 2 Timothy. Evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And it's easy at this point to think of them, the other guy, as the enemy. And we're going to turn in a minute, and we're going to look and say they're not the enemy. We need to remember that. God's solution for us in a divided world like this is found in scriptures. That's what he's telling Timothy in verse 14. But continue, continue in the things that you have learned and has been assured of, and knowing of whom you have learned them. So, what he seems to be saying to me is we better make up our mind what we really believe. And continue in the things that we're assured of, what do you really believe about God? What do you really believe about the Lord Jesus Christ? What, do you, what does the Bible tell you to believe about itself? What are you holding on to when times get tough? Now, what, he seems, what Paul seems to be telling Timothy, which also applies to us, we should hold fast to the principles, not only of godly scriptures, but of godly people. Look at Paul, Paul said, look at me, follow my example. And in the church here, one of the reasons I think we gather in churches is so that we can associate with other men and women who are godly. And we can look at their lives. So we really have two things to do while we're here beyond worshiping and beyond learning. And that is finding examples of what Christianity looks like. And the other is setting examples for others of what Christianity looks like. You are, be, you are to be mentored and you are to be a mentor of others. And I, I often go back and think about one of my first pastors, Ralph Michael, and how he faced the problems he had in the church he was at and the grace and the love as he went up against opposition and how he did that in humility and peace he set an example for me you see what I mean and that's the kind of thing we need to set for one another keep in mind our children are watching us and it's important that we set good examples of what you do when things go wrong and it's not easy to do as a parent or as an adult Timothy had Paul for an example of how to stand in opposition to the world. It's important for us to have others around to set an example for us, and it's important for us to become examples for others. But continue in the things that thou hast learned and hast been assured of. It wouldn't be a waste of time once in a while for us to think about, what do I really believe? You know, what's really worth living for what really matters am i caught up in the things of this world do i get caught up or am i in fact grounded in scriptures and the things that god thinks important are they important to me am i setting an example for others now paul reminds timothy in verse 15 the purpose of knowing these scriptures all right and that i'm in verse 15 now and second timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 if i've lost it and that from a child you have known the holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. Now that's good. You know, that's where you start. You start in the Scriptures. You learn about wisdom, and you find out that Jesus died for your sins, and you've confessed your sins, and you asked Him into your heart to save you, and now you've 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 achieved the point where you are saved. You've you are now wise unto salvation, through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. And you've come to learn that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's good for everything you do. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God, now he's writing to Timothy, a man, that the, the man or woman of God may be perfect. Now the word there is teleao, it's complete, it's, it's mature, it's brought to completion. Uh, or fulfillment that the man of God may be complete or mature truly furnished unto all good works in other words Paul I believe is saying as our world spirals into sin we must hold fast to the teachings of the Bible because everything we need to know is there take your problems to the scriptures and ask God to show you how to solve them that's the point now We're going to switch back now, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 6, because Paul's going to remind us something about them, the other guys, the world, the lost world that is in opposition to us, or seems to be in opposition to us. At one point, I don't remember who it was, but one of the disciples wrote, they're actually opposing themselves. Uh, They don't really understand what they're doing. So I'm in Ephesians chapter 6 and I'm in verse 12, a very famous passage. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now I want you to think about that as a minute as, as, as Paul is facing these uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and and these legalistic Jews that are attempting to destroy everything that he's teaching and have, have whipped him and stoned him and punished him and, and locked him up as he looks at all his opposition, even now as this letter is being written, he's in a Roman prison. He's not going to get out this time. His head is going to be chopped off. And he'll, he'll tell Timothy that, you know, henceforth is laid up for me a crown, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, you know. But even then, he writes, these are not our enemies. And this is what we have to focus on as we look at us and them, which is is really a weak way to look at it. Uh, Our true enemy is Satan. Now, I can't tell you the difference between a power and a principality, uh, the rulers of darkness or spiritual wickedness. Some people would get way off into that about different levels in the demonic realm. I don't understand that. I just know that Satan is the enemy that we're facing. Even when Peter went to rebuke the Lord Jesus Christ, remember about the cross, Jesus, I mean, Peter said something, Lord, Lord, that's not going to happen. You're not going to go to a cross. And Jesus didn't even rebuke Peter. He rebuked Satan behind Peter. Get thee behind me, Satan, for you are an offense unto me. I know Peter thought, wait a minute, what are you saying? You know, when Jesus saw the enemy, Behind the opposition and that's what I'm attempting to say and perhaps not very well I want you to begin to focus on the enemy that's truly behind your opposition When we think about where we were before we were saved Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 2 Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4 It's a couple of pages back it's just a few verses But God, God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherein he loved us Think about when you were saved, Paul said God had rich mercy upon us, right? For his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, hath quickened us, made us alive, Quickened means to bring back the life, hath quickened us together with Christ, for by grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So think about where we were when we were lost, and how much under the control of evil we were and had no control Right. Now I'm going to skip down to verse 12. That at that time, speaking about us in our lost days, back in the old days, you know, the days we like to glorify where there's no glory in it at all, that at that time you were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes were afar off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And the reminder here, somewhat disjointed I know, is that this, this this, they out there are exactly where we were before Christ changed us. We need to see them that way. Victims of Satan just like we are. Victims of deception just like we were. I hope I put that last word in the tense. Victims of Satan just like our past. Once we were just like them. Now Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6 that there is a battle going on. But the battle is not so much between the opposition in front of us and us as it is between the Christ in us and Satan. And that's what we pick up in verse 6. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God. I'm in verse 13 of chapter 6. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now, I'll tell you, there's a lot of people that will do a lot of good sermons on this subject, and you need to hear them all, because there's an awful lot of good information on the armor of God. And I'm only going to tip on it, I'm hoping to whet your appetite for it, and then you'll go back and do some research on your own. Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. So what Paul is apparently doing, and I get this from other commentators, they do seem to agree that Paul is at this moment hopefully seated in, in a Roman cell and most likely, commentators believe, either chained to the wall or to a Roman guard. Or perhaps even two. I don't know why. You know, much of his imprisonment in Rome, they actually let him run a house of his own and he was under house arrest. But many picture this as he goes to write this, looking at a Roman soldier. And I don't know if this is immediately prior to his death or if we who are preachers are just reading indices, something we shouldn't read. But Paul is clearly envisioning the Roman soldier as he writes this, and he looks at their preparations for war, and he begins to apply their preparations for war for ours. How do we fight this battle? That's the question. See, we know how Roman fights this battle. You know, he's got his sword, and he's got his breastplate, and he's got his shield, and he's got his hobnailed sandals. He's got his helmet. He's ready to go to war. Paul, if he is looking at this soldier, as many think he is, is thinking, how do you go to war? How do I go to war? Now he picks up on the belt first. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. The Roman belt held the soldier's clothing and his weapons in place. The soldier had to walk 20 miles a day carrying a heavy spear and all his gear And the belt was an integral part of that. Now, Paul says that for us, that belt, that thing that holds it all together, you know, we used to have ammo belts. We had everything on there. We had our first aid kit on there. We had our water on there. We had a little pack in the back that we put our food, and we had little packages that we put our ammo clips in. And and We carried everything on that belt. That's what Paul is describing here. And for us, that belt is truth. Truth, he says, is what's going to hold it all together for us. There's a whole message in each one of these, and I'm not going to take your time with it. But truth is a commitment to believe God's word about the lies of Satan. When, when the enemy comes to you, you have to concentrate on what is true. It's important that we know what is true. Truth is also a commitment to live by this truth that we know. So truth is kind of like that two-edged sword. It's not a sword, but it's got two edges to it. One is you have to know it, and the other is we have to do it. Not always easy. Not always easy to know the truth. It's even harder to live the truth, and perhaps harder still to tell the truth. It's important, however, that we make a commitment to live in the truth. Because any lie that we foster becomes a crack in our armor that Satan can get at us with. Speak the truth, Jesus said. Our God is truth. His word is truth. We must be a people of truth. We must not attempt to make ourselves anything more than we really are. We should be honest about our faults and about our weaknesses. People should see an honesty in us that is rarely found anywhere they go except amongst Christians. And then when we speak the truth of God's word, they will believe us because that's all they've ever heard from us. It's so all they've ever heard from you is truth. It's important that you understand, Paul said, that what holds it all together is the truth. Secondly, we should put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, the Roman breastplate was primarily leather. Sometimes it would be, uh, it would have metal on it if you were an officer, but most of the times it was leather. And it's purpose was pretty much the same as our bulletproof vests today. You'll see soldiers today will be wearing a vest. Now they they actually can hang their ammo in that vest. But the purpose of that vest is to stop attacks from penetrating the most, most important part of your body. It is Christ's righteousness, Paul says, that forms our breastplate, our bulletproof vest, if you will. It's not our own. My favorite passage is, he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We are made the righteousness of God in him. Now, Satan attacks us by shooting fiery darts at us, by shooting things into your mind and making you feel guilty or weak or stupid or embarrassed. He does this all the time. And the way you quench that is by understanding that it is not your righteousness that is our standing. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. God protects us from these attacks when we stand in his righteousness. You know, you're right. I'm not much, but Christ is everything. We stand in his righteousness. It's not me, it's him. It's not my righteousness. It's not your righteousness. It's his righteousness. Now, there are many demons that will desire to do you harm, but in Christ, you are untouchable. You are impenetrable through his righteousness. When Satan casts an accusation and accuses you of something, you can agree with him that you are a fallen individual, but then you remind him that you stand in the righteousness of Christ himself. Your standing is not your own. Having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The Roman sandal was nothing like our flip-flops. It was a heavy-duty leather affair that had hobnails under it and clinched over. It looked more like a set of football spikes than what we would call sandals. And the purpose of that was to give them good footing. The basis of our footing is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the gospel is the fact that Jesus came, took on our sin, died in our place, was resurrected three days later, and is seated on the right hand of God. And he ever lives, the writer of Hebrews says, to make intercession for us. This is our basis. This is our standing. The gospel is our firm foundation. We can stand steadily, steadily regardless of who's attacking us from without. If we face our enemies from a position of accomplished victory. That's where you stand. Immovable, impenetrable, protected by truth. No matter what comes or who the enemy is, you know that Jesus has died for you and your future is saved. Hold on to that. How firm a foundation the psalm reads. Ye saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Above all, Paul writes, verse 16 taking the shield of faith wherewith you. shall able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. I'm told that the Roman shield was two feet wide and four feet high. You've all seen pictures of that. The Roman army, when they came under attack, they could link all their shields together, and they, they created this formation where even arrows couldn't get through it. They actually created what they called the turtle, and the arrows coming in from above couldn't get to them. You fire all your arrows, and then all these guys stand up and come running at you, swinging their sword. It must have been terrifying absolutely terrifying you know the woman soldier carried it everywhere he went our fixed trust in Jesus is our shield I, I remember one time I, I, I know I know Ralph my pastor pastor Michael would be more respectful I suppose I know he was copying this from someone else I don't know who said it first but at one point he told me I, I told him about it's really struggling. Struggling with temptations and sin. And uh, he said, it, it's, it's easy. I thought, well, it might be easy for you, but it's not easy for me. And he said, listen, here's the deal. Anytime time an attack comes knocking on your door, whether it's a desire to sin or somebody wants to tear you down, every time a problem comes knocking on your door, just send Jesus to answer. And he always had these little quickie things. didn't make any sense at all to me, but they were. It's not up to me you see it's jesus i can't do this lord i need your help lord this is beyond me you don't even have to say it you just have to think it this is outside the realm of my strength lord i can't do this without you above all taking the shield of faith faith is your trust in the lord jesus christ this is the key to victory it's imperative that you learn to send jesus to answer the door when trouble comes to knocking. When doubt and fear plague you, start singing, Jesus loves me." When you start feeling worthless, find a hymn and start singing. You know, when accusing words affront you, hold up Jesus as your shield. That is your only word. I can't tell you how many times it's worked for me when I've said, Jesus, I can't do this. I need you. That he's stepped up. I can't say he's never let me down, but I will tell you this. I can't remember any time in the past that he has that. And verse 17, he says, Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. I'm sorry, I'm doing two things at the same time. And take the helmet of salvation, comma, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Roman helmet was a leather thing, and the whole purpose of it was if you took a blow to the head, it would protect your head, just like a football helmet is today or, or a hockey helmet. It is the fact that we belong to Jesus that keeps us from a fatal blow. If you get whacked in the head with a sword, it'll kill you. But if you have a helmet on, it'll stop that from penetrating. In Christ, we are incapable of Satan applying to us a fatal blow. He can kill our bodies, as the psalm says, but he can't touch our souls. It's not our intellect or our training or innate strength, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary that is our confidence in Christ. Jesus wrote or said, John wrote, first chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And here's the promise, verse 28 John ten twenty-eight, And I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. The helmet is the guarantee that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. And the only offensive weapon, the only thing that we use to go at them is the word of God, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Our one offensive weapon, our sword of the Spirit, is God's Word, hidden in our hearts. You know, there there ought to be, by now in your life, many things that you know that you can share with someone or you can say out of God's Word. But the interesting thing about my walk with the Lord has been, even verses I didn't memorize were there when I needed them. Because the Holy Spirit brings him to mind. Tucked away in your soul. Is the author. Of the scriptures. And we can trust him. Today. That's our offensive witness. You remember Jesus when he was being. Uh, maligned and tempted by Satan. Would always respond to Satan. With a scripture passage. It shut him up every time. It works for us too. I want you to understand. The writer of Hebrews tells us. That only God's word can penetrate the gloom of the darkness in which our quote-unquote enemies dwell. You have to understand that those that would do us harm are victims of the darkness in which they live. And finally, in verse 18, Paul recommends praying always with all prayer and supplication in spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. That's a long way to say, folks, remember to keep praying for one another. Remember to lift one another up in prayer. Remember to spend time with the Lord, naming the name of your friends. It isn't really that He's going to forget them, the issue is that we don't want to forget them. Thank you, Father, for this time. Father, as we see this, darkness coming over our land going in the way of many other countries first and foremost Father we're hoping for a revival we're hoping for a reprieve we're hoping Father that you will wake your church up and we will stand up and stand against this darkness but in the midst of all that Father I pray that you would teach us how to do warfare in the spiritual world. Teach us, Father, to trust you, to walk with you, to speak for you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.